Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's time to walk to the back of the stand where the truth is really told. I'm Mark Saggers. And on the Sunday Night Club, we delve into the sports that matter, the controversial discussions that others aren't brave enough to have. In this episode, Moody Blues in Manchester, cherries on top in the northwest, and whistling in the wind as refereeing farces continue. And against the head, can anybody really stop Ireland in the Six Nations? and spicy relationships on the grid as Formula One returns. He, a man of brilliance at time, and perhaps at times badly managed. Not by the managers, like Sir Alex Ferguson, and when he went off to Juventus and then came back to Manchester United. He was a man at times... I thought, look, lost. Lost in who was running Paul Pogba. Not the man, but the business. Remember Didier Deschamps at the beginning of the World Cup in 2018, which France went on to win. He hooked him in that first match. There was a massive picture of him down the Champs-Élysées. It was all about Pogba. It didn't need to be. His football always did the talking. But what I do worry is when I hear that players have got injured and they still want to continue and they want to play more and then they fail drugs tests. Uh, he, of course, will ask for a second uh, opinion. But I don't think this time around there looks as if there will possibly be a way back. We're going to look at that in detail. We're going to look at whether it's a, a one-off incident or if there are many more of these because it's all gone quiet on the football front. And it is something, as we talk about other issues and other problems throughout European football in particular, um, that's something we'll revisit in our middle hour. A middle hour, of course, which is now our secondary podcast of Back of the Stand, which comes out every Wednesday. And we'll have another cracking middle hour for you on this one. Let's talk about the football and the Manchester derby first of all. And Marcus Rashford with a worldie. And then Phil Foden with the man of the match performance with two great goals. I think what it told us is that Manchester United are now a distance behind Manchester City. Pete Molyneux has been a Manchester United fan for over 60 years. Ian Brightwell has played for Manchester City. Delighted to say they're both uh, with me tonight. Um, Manchester United, first of all, if I could say to you, good evening, gentlemen. Pete, to you, first of all. I mean, you, you score through Rashford. And uh, there was a shot on the television to show Gareth South Southgate watching in the stands. And then tactically, Manchester United seemed to use the Gareth Southgate tactic. Oh, it might only be eight minutes into the game, but we, we have a goal advantage. We'll have and keep what we hold. We're never going to be able to do that against this quality City side. 
good evening, Mark. Good evening, Ian. Um, no, uh, well, they weren't. Uh, the game proved that. I think Ten Hag had uh, uh, dusted off the script to use at Anfield in December when we did get away with it. And um, so I thought, I thought it's not the it's not the way I want Manchester United to play. Obviously, I don't think any United fan does. But sometimes you have to cut your cloth to suit your material, or that's the right expression. And um, it seems to be working in the first half. I thought our display and defence was brilliant. The blocking and the discipline, the commitment was superb from our defence. And the Rashford goal was a bonus. Mm-hmm. Two ways. It gave us a lead. I think it put it didn't scare City, but it put the cat amongst the pigeons a little bit. Um, but it, it did seem like a very good thing for Rashford, given what he's gone through this week, uh, to get amongst the goals and what a superb goal it was. Yeah, look, it was a great goal, Ian, wasn't it? But then two more that uh, won it in the second half before Haaland added the third, even though he should have headed rather than try and flick one in with uh, the top of his uh, foot earlier in the game. Yeah. Uh, it was comfortable in the end, even though, though the result didn't quite show that to me today. Manchester City looks a class above. Yeah, good evening, Pete, and good evening, Mark. Yeah, it was, um, I mean, Manchester United, obviously, they went in to, to play the game. They had 11 men behind, you know, behind the ball at, at all times. And I think if you look at the possession stats and the number of shots and the shots on target, City were way ahead. But United played, you know, they, they, that's the game they were playing, which for me isn't the way Manchester United <laughs> Uh, traditionally have played or do play um, so it was a little bit disappointing from that point of view but it was effective very very much so during the first half and I mean Pete said and you, you've said about Rashford's goal it was uh, it was a fabulous strike yeah. but it came it was a, a long ball out from the back on the break uh, knocked down and Rashford finished it really well it was a superb goal um, but after that you know City had again all the possession um, Harland, I mean, it's, it's hard to slag him off, isn't it? But yeah. I mean, I think any of us three could have put that in. Um, yeah. Well, certainly Mickey Quinn would have done. He'd have told me I'd have got some part of the body on it and nothing to do with the feet. Yeah, said. for sure. So, uh, but then, like for me, I always thought that uh, just the way that United were playing, they wouldn't be able to keep that intensity, right, defensive intensity up for the full 90 minutes. Um, and then when the, the ball came to Foden, and you could just see he came inside and and what a strike. I mean, two fantastic strikes. You, you know, you've got Rashford and, and Phil Foden. But as soon as that goal went in, I, I felt, you know, the crowd lifted, the City crowd lifted and they uh, they just stepped it up a gear and they were knocking it around. Mm. And it was only really a matter of time before uh, Phil Foden got the second. And um, I, I was a little bit worried, I must admit that, that uh, United would get another one on the break, you know, just out, out of the blue. But Ireland, of course, put put the game to bed with a, a another really good finish. It was, um, yeah, great result for City. And yeah. uh, I, I think City are, as you quite rightly said, Mark, was uh, they're miles ahead at, uh, mm-hmm. of most teams at the moment. Yeah, I think they are. And, uh, and one of the things that I liked, I'll come back to you if I may in a moment, Pete, but just one more for you here, on Ian. The, the the little um, movement that they that they just extend within their little squares and their triangles and everything they all know instinctively what they're doing, and their vision actually to to play the right ball that doesn't look as if it's the right ball if you're trying to defend if you see what I mean. They're, they're just so patient on the ball and they've got confidence in in each other and um, 
yeah, the runs that they make, there's a lot of decoy runs. So as a, a defending side, it, it's in, almost impossible to mark. And as the game goes on and that intensity, the opposing teams get tired, quite rightly, because it's 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 hard work. But City, they very rarely lose possession. And uh, their choice of ball, nine times out of ten, is, is the right ball. And they've got people to put it in the back of the net as well. Time for us to talk about today's other game. And uh, it was... Uh, the way of Bournemouth in the end, which again for Burnley, another difficult afternoon for them at Turf Moor. Um, and uh, let's speak with Natalie Bromley and uh, with Craig Beasley. Uh, Natalie, if I could come to you first. Uh, home at Turf Moor this afternoon and uh, beaten again today. And it's a, a question really about, you know, where next and what, what do you do? I feel a feel for you and all at Turf Moor. Yeah, it's been a really miserable season and one that surprised me really. I never came into this season expecting us to do very well. I know a lot of people were um, saying we were going to finish top of the table. We might even be pushing for Europe, which I always thought was a nonsense anyway. I always knew with the, the difficulty that the Premier League presents that we would be you know, trying to fight away from relegation. I didn't expect us to be this abysmal and quite frankly, we, we have been abysmal this season. Why? Do you think? Lots of reasons. Um, bad recruitment, um, inexperience throughout the entire club. We've got a manager who may know the Premier League very well, but has never managed it before. Not his fault. It's his first season managing it there. We've got a very young, inexperienced team that are new largely to English football as well as the Premier League. Didn't play together. Um I always thought that the, that we were in trouble from the first game of the season. The, the the title winning side that ran all over the championship last season just got ripped to pieces in the in the summer. A load of new players came in, and we started the Premier League with a load of new players who'd never played together before. That team was then changed for about five or six games, tinkered with, and and I think to this day, Vincent Company still doesn't know who his best side is. Mm. Um, and it's just been, it, it, we've learned recently from a press conference that the company decided that the team that won the championship last season was nowhere near good enough to compete in the Premier League. Well, Plan B hasn't been anywhere close either. And, but I think what's happened now is that you've got a team that's fractured and it's very mm. disconnected to large portions of the fan base. Yeah, you make a good point there. I think I remember when Sheffield United came back up after having come from the third tier, League One, and then through to the Premier League the first time around. They kept a lot of their players and they really, I mean, they stayed up at that first season. I mean, it was difficult yeah. for them after that. But they, they'd got the nucleus of that side. And, exactly. And Craig, I think for, for Bournemouth as well, you know, patience, that's a big win for your side today. Yeah, it is. Um, I think, you know, we were second best for long periods of that match. And I'm going to give Natalie and Burnley a little bit of credit because some of their play you know, was very, very good. You know, they can pass the ball, but there seems to be no end product. Um, I don't know why, and here's a question for you, Natalie, why Jay Rodriguez is on the bench, because he is a real, real threat. And I don't understand that. And I was surprised um, because I did a preview ahead of this game with Andy Hodgson. Um, so the king of shopping TV, as I like to call him. <laughs> he's um, great, he's <laughs> Yeah, he's a good man. He's a very, very good man and good laugh as well. But I was surprised how many players that you bought in. Because when we were promoted 
back in 2015. I honestly thought after that promotion, we're nowhere near ready. You know, we are really going to be struggling up against it all season. And to be honest, you know, we didn't spend much time in the relegation zone that season. And we kept that same squad that got us promoted. So I do wonder if that's part of Burnley's problems, because you did run away with the championship. Um, If he had a little bit more faith and put a bit more faith in those players... You know, I honestly think you would have been in a lot better, in a lot stronger position because I was one of those people, I've got to be honest, I was one of those people who said Burnley are going to do quite well this season. One of the, one of the things, Natalie, for me, though, is that uh, coming in, um, you know, in the Premier League uh, with uh, things that, that are happening is that there is just that extra quality pace that as a striker, it's tough it's tough to actually get yourself in yeah. position. You watch the really good strikers in the Premier League, they get the goals because they right, yeah. they're right up to it the whole time. Uh, whereas those that are on the verge, we often talk about you know championship players coming into the Premier League. Some of them make it, others nearly make it. They might score a couple of goals, but they're, they're not doing it regularly enough to keep a side like Burnley up. I think that's true. And and we saw glimpses of this last season. Um, Vincent Company doesn't fill his sides with strikers. He doesn't believe in that way of playing. Um, we, like quite naively at the beginning of the of the championship season, said, you know, like, you've not signed a striker that's going to score you 20 goals in the championship. And if you don't have a striker that will score you 20 goals in the championship, you're not getting out of it. He proved us wrong because he played a style of football that championship managers didn't know how to counteract. And he filled his squad with wingers and attacking fullbacks and midfield and that's the goals were spread across the team he's carried that into this season and that is just absolutely impossible in this league unless you're one of the big four or five sides that have multi-million pound players who can do that but the the biggest frustration for me from company this season we have given him a lot of room this season Burnley fans have been very forgiving Um, as much as I don't like people to lose their jobs I'm not sure there's many managers that can lose 20 games in a season and still remain in a job Um, so we've been very patient with him but one thing that's really really annoyed me is his stubbornness and his inability to tweak the side or do the really gritty determined stuff that isn't the fast-flowing Pep-style football that he wants to play just to survive. And Mm -hmm. the the irrational fan in me gets annoyed because I think he's he's paid for his reputation as that kind of of entertainment-flowing football manager with our place Mm -hmm. in the league. And if he'd have just done what Luton are doing, what other people are trying to do just to do the the unattractive and the, the gritty stuff just to survive... There's some poor sides at the bottom of the, of the league this year. There's points deductions all over the place. We could have had a chance. But his stubbornness to be seen as that manager who plays that attacking football has been a catastrophic error and, and poor judgment, in my opinion. Time to talk to Keith Hackett and to Steve Chitterton, two uh, former football uh, league referees, and uh, Keith, of course, who uh, refereed in the Premier League. And um, uh, what's important for me is that I, throughout my career as a broadcast journalist over 45 years now, I've had zero tolerance with anybody caught taking drugs within professional sport or sport at a high level. And it was amateur at times with Olympics and, and what have you, but it's, it's all professional these days. Because I have to be able to see 
and believe what I see. I don't in football anymore in the Premier League. I don't in the lower leagues to start with now. I don't when I'm even looking at VAR. I certainly don't when I watch the referees and what's going on at the moment. And if we can't believe what we see, our football is in desperate times. And one thing this week, I spoke to four young men and one young woman, all five were thinking and choosing between being umpires up to possibly a minor county level or football referees going into the professional game. They have all turned their back on football because they don't want to know, because they don't think they would ever get a fair chance. Keith, this is terrible. Yes, it is. And, uh, you know, I think the game at the elite level has to understand its responsibility to grassroots football and set a better example on the field of play. Now, what we've seen this week, Mark, is the IFAB had their meeting in Scotland this weekend and they've been the idea of blue cards. They've said, no, we're not going to go ahead. But my disappointment is that, and I've said before, the value of the yellow card on the impact of the game is almost non-existent. You give a yellow card, it doesn't stop the player in his tracks like it used to. And you've got someone like Anthony Taylor, one of our most experienced referees, and a good man-manager because of his background. He, He was a prison officer, so he knows how to deal with people. But in 19 games so far this season, he has issued 99 yellow cards. That means his average is around about 5.5 yellow cards per game. And this is about dissent. And it's about parents going around the touchline, abusing our young referees. And it makes very, very difficult grounding for our referees in order to advance. My view is, please take up referee. The reason I say that, I visited 100 countries you know, I met royalty. Uh, I wouldn't have done any of that, Mark, without my involvement in refereeing. And it's not a lonely job. There's lots of friends around the world that I correspond with almost on a daily basis. Mm. But Steve, looking at, again, what happened yesterday with Nottingham Forest in that match during those last few minutes of injury time, nine in all, And of course, what happened at the end of the game, but what actually happened was a mistake by the referee when it came to the drop ball. I don't believe that mistake would have been made perhaps two seasons ago or three seasons ago before VAR, you know? I think think it showed yesterday, firstly, the pressure that that the referees at the top level are under. I mean, Keith will know this far better than me, but nobody will be feeling um, more disappointed this morning than Paul Tierney. No, I understand. He's made an error. He's made a human error. Um, It was probably too late to put right again because the game restarted very quickly. And the the furore that happened afterwards with... And now we're at the stage now where chairman and owners Mm. are going to start to come on the pitch and remonstrate with the officials. I presume it wasn't covered a lot, but I presume there was a hell of a lot of um, activity down the tunnel as they went down the tunnel. 
Um, I've read stories about um, Mark Clattenburg, who is now, I believe, um, contracted to Nottingham Forest. Mm-hmm. He's with the referees. Uh, you know, and I read he tried to get in to speak to Paul Tierney and Paul Tierney wouldn't let him in. And and it's just, it cascades. I've said this before. It cascades down. And without a doubt, this morning somewhere in youth football and in senior football, it's not just about youth football. This is about the guys that are refereeing men's football, grassroots football, at all levels, Saturday and Sunday. It will cascade down. And there'll be a, another error made, which we all... We've all made we all make errors as sure. referees, and I, yeah, and it and it will, it will end up in this kind of, I guess, the the activity to, towards the referees. One other thing for me, Keith, with all of this and some of the other nonsense that we've had from the Premier League this uh, week, you know, Everton lost ten points, and then suddenly now they've been looked more favourably on. They've only lost six points. I've just been talking to a club that were beaten by Everton. And, the, and, and let's say that Bournemouth don't win another game to the end of the season, they could still go down, even though they wouldn't have done if Everton had still got the 10 points. This is making a mockery of the Premier League, ah, one of the top leagues in the world. And it's doing it on all sorts of different levels. Players are cheating. Players are conning referees. Players don't care what's happening because there doesn't ever seem to be really... Uh, any answer or comeback from half the stuff that they do. We now know that you have to have extra minutes because of the the time-wasting going on from every goalkeeper in every part of professional football now, dropping to their knees, going down injured with a centre-half if if they're one up or if it's a time-wasting. The whole game for me is out of control at the moment and I blame owners as much as anything because owners... As we saw, Forest owners cross the line onto that pitch. He may say he owns that pitch, but I tell you what, if a fan had done that, he'd be banned for life. Yes. I mean, what is interesting here, Mark, is that, you know, I worked under the banner of Richard Scudamore, the CEO. Mm. There was no question. Uh, It's only now that we see the value of having someone of his expertise and, and power, because the one thing that he kept certainly having a go at me at when referees made errors was the image and the damage to the image of the game. Mm-hmm. When he saw a trend in the game like cheating and diving, he took it upon himself to liaise with the PFA and the LMA and the PGMOL to say this has got to stop. Mm-hmm. Now, the game, it's cyclical because when you when you lay a rule down, it doesn't last that long. But this is the game needing to get its act together. For me, I think the blue card binned should be replaced where football now to get it to get some discipline back to help referees. I think we've got to look to points deductions. You know, ninety nine yellow cards issued by. Anthony Taylor, a very, very experienced referee, makes life even more difficult for referees at grassroots level where parents are out of control. I I also think as well, Steve, that for referees themselves now, this VAR thing is absolute nonsense. Uh, I know that they all say it works for everything and it works in the Premier League, really, for offsides and what have you. 
But you know what? I think if you got rid of it again completely and just got back to what football is all about, it's not uh, about the pedants, as we were talking about earlier in this programme when uh, Imbratwell was, ta was talking about that. It's about real people who go to watch real football, who want to explode with joy when they um, have scored a goal and at times want to be full of angst when things aren't going their way. Referees can no longer referee properly. Their mind's completely mixed up. They're getting, they're getting stuff talked so that they know from the fourth official as he's being basically verbalised by both sides' uh, bench, the whole of the bench uh, uh, for a lot of the time. The game is out of control in the Premier League. And it's not helping now. It's beginning to seep down into the football league as well. Yeah, I think I think the important thing to th to think here as well is the referees at the very top that are using VAR. I'm sure they're not. I don't sure they don't want to use it as they're using it or being asked to use it. Hmm. Um, and I think it needs to be freed up a bit. There's too many protocols, and I mean, if you take the the Liverpool Nottingham Forest, it happens so quick. And I think what kicked in there, Keith might know obviously a lot more about this than me, but I believe that once that ball is in play, so once he's dropped it in front of the keeper, it's too late. You can't stop the game. And we saw it in the offside earlier on for the for the goal and the um, with the I think it was Tottenham, wasn't it? Tottenham yeah. Manchester. And and I think it, it it needs to be almost at the a tool that the referee can use how he wants to use it. So if he wants to go over and have a look at a penalty incident, he can go over. If if he wants to see is it a yellow card or a red card, he can go over and have another look at it. I know people will say, well, they'll always be over having second, third looks. But yesterday, for me, typified how it's not being used correctly. I don't know who it's being... I, I really don't know who it's being used for now, though. Steve, I've come back to you here, Keith. One, the one thing that worries me about that is that I think it's still unfair on the referees and the assistants, whatever you... If you're going to use it, you've got to use it properly. If you're not going to use it, we don't use it at all. I don't think the referees should have to go over. They have to make the decision. They will get better again. There is no doubt about that, that, that referees know that they've got um, such a, a, a thing to fall back on that will take away certain things. And then they're getting scrambled about other things. But I think they lose their edge. I really yes. do believe they, that, that referees at the highest level are losing their edge because they're not having to make a lot of the really important decisions. I think you're right. I mean, there's no question that I watched uh, Craig Pawson. I'm so, I, I, I bring him up because I, I've seen a good referee hesitate when he's got VAR operating. A couple of weeks ago in an FA Cup game, he was brilliant. I mean, he was he was absolutely focused and on the and on the case you know when steve and i officiated mark mm. we relied heavily on our mm. assistant referees linesmen then and and i can't believe that the linesman or the fourth official i know he's busy could not have come in and helped paul tierney paul tierney lost a little bit of his concentration now we don't know whether that is players getting at him but he blew he blew the whistle, and he probably lost a little bit of uh, geography yep. in terms of it wasn't he didn't stop it inside the penalty area. That's an easy decision. Drop ball to the goalkeeper. He restarted the game with an uncontested drop ball to a Liverpool player. It was an error. But this afternoon, Mark, I watched Manchester United Man City, and I want to say 
how well Andy Madley refereed that game. Mm. And I also want to refer to Arland, the, the, the wonderful goal scorer for Manchester City. He was one yard out from the goal line with an open net and he put the ball over the crossbar. Mm. Football constantly has errors for passing and everything. And, you know, when we look at referees, it's, we've made them professional because we want them to be fitter and more mobile. But somehow we've lost a little bit of the teamwork, the support mechanism. And this is where I agree entirely with Steve. And that is they should be allowed to use VAR as a group of referees, how they want to use it. But you see, because one, one other yeah, thing, because we haven't got long left on this, and I will come back, Keith, and we'll talk about it later. One, one thing, and I'll come to you, Steve, and then finish with you, Keith, a minute each, if possible, please, is that one thing that really worries me about all of this now is that we've got referees making decisions at the same time as we've got the Premier League deducting points and then giving points back. Now, that's four points given back to Everton. There could have been a number of decisions that either went their way or went against the opposite, whatever it was, that is actually skewing this league. You can't yes. do... And I think with all of that going on and everything else, everybody at the moment thinks the total chaos... And owners, and of course managers, will be the first to say we're the ones who have been undone by all of this. Steve? Absolutely That's right, Mark. I mean, there's, there's no question that the the whole aspect of how the competition is being managed and run at the moment, from an outsider, looks unprofessional. And And the one thing you want is total credibility and transparency. Mm. And I think... You know, as a fan at Everton, they've still been deducted points. They've still got to be disappointed. And we could have a fictitious result based on what a club has spent and whether yeah. they've brought the, the rules and regulations of running a football club. Steve, just finally, w would you go into refereeing still, knowing what you now see? I would, because I think the young referees... I wasn't that young as they are now, um, to be honest with you. I was young at the time, but not now. But but I would hope, like Keith said, that, you know, for me, it's not all negative because I would hope there's some young referees that are just starting who watched Andy Madley today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Let's have a look at it in, in a bit more uh, detail then. Nick, if I could bring you in here. I've been, I was reading an excellent piece by Stephen Jones today in the Sunday Times where he thinks it's all about you men up front, that that's the way that England have got to somehow take on Ireland. Do you agree with that? Yeah, look, in, in, in the short term, I think England are, uh, you know, there's a bit of a dichotomy, a contrast in where they want to go with their rugby because we've been we beat down this route before with England where, you know, I'm not saying they will, but you pull a performance out. But we've also heard this talk of, you know, growth and development and transition and everything. And England have got to make a choice and we'll find out in the next two games of where they're going with their game in terms of proceeding to... You know, actually blood after the game last week, which was a hell of a disappointing game that we discussed on here last last Sunday, is, mm. you know, a few more youngsters need to be blooded, a few more of the old guard, you know, aren't, aren't producing the goods and probably need to, you know, be, be ushered out. But I can sort of see Steve Borthwick and, you know, England closing ranks and going down, as you say in the article, it was all about physicality. Well, it generally is when you're playing one of the best sides, you know, mm. to, to upset their rhythm, to get in their faces, to force errors. You know, England did it to the All Blacks back in 2012, did it in 2019, the semi-final. Ireland, historically in Leinster, when they've been on such flowing form, have come unstuck against really brutish physical sides. Once in a while, you know. However, I don't think that'll do for this Ireland side. This Ireland side from the World Cup seems to have added a little bit, well quite a bit of power and edge to their game, knowing that that's probably their Achilles heel. So it'll be interesting to see how England go go after them. I know the Blitz defence will, will come into play massively. I think, you know, that, that's got to. You've got to upset the Irish rhythm there. You know, I think you've also got to have a few tricks up your sleeve. But are we looking at short-term gain and to spoil the Irish party, which there's nothing wrong with, or are we actually looking for a little short-term pain for long-term gain with wearing this rugby is going. Well, well, there we is. Uh, uh, and that's a really good point, Nick. So, George, what, what do you feel um, that the fans who turn up at Twickenham and also those that will be watching around the world or listening on the radio or the television uh, w- will be thinking? Um, surely now it's down to Borthwick to develop a new side, that we have the cycle of the four years. Yes, this is such an important... Um, time for England and their rugby but let's not forget that Ireland are a different class do they go back again to to uh, others that can disrupt or do they move forward thinking that this is just sort of I want to carry on like this whatever happens what they should do and what they will do are going to be two very different things I think it's 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 exactly right that you need to be looking towards the next World Cup you need to start developing players and, and, a, and, a, and a squad that can go into that tournament and compete they'll more than compete hopefully um, but I think that's one of the mistakes Eddie Jones made is he took the Six Nations a bit lightly he took the Six Nations as a bit of preparation time to, to sort of 
get his master plan going as it happened it didn't work but I think if you neglect the Six Nations then it, you, you you get a very short shrift from the fans you know, fan, fans are as much as people like to talk about development and progress people, the fans in general want fairly immediate success and uh, I think if England were to lose four games five games in, in, in a tournament uh, and say we're developing I, I don't think that would go down very well and here we are now with two games left against the two arguably the two best teams in this tournament, um, you're looking down the barrel of of, of one win out of, uh, of the, sorry, two wins out of the whole tournament. Um, and I'm not sure that, you know, the, the pressure Borthwick's already under, I'm not sure that's going to go away if we if we lose, particularly if we lose badly in the next two games. Uh, I don't think we can use the excuse of uh, bloody youngsters. Um, he, he should be able to, and only him and the RFU will know how secure his job is. Um, yeah, I, I guess if you if if I was wearing those those shoes, I'd have taken the job initially, saying, "Look, you you, you can't, you've got to give me time. You can't, I can't turn things around straight away." Yes, the World Cup, you can probably stick a few sticking plasters on, and that's what happened when they get to the semi-finals. But in terms of the next two or three Six Nations, I need to be able to make mistakes and lose games and and blood these younger players, uh, or else we're not going to get into the World Cup next time. Any sort of form or, or or continuity. So if they've had that conversation away from the, the sort of the glare of the public and, and the press, then th these, these games are, in, in essence, uh, freebies for Borthwick. He can afford to experiment and lose them. Uh, but like I say, I don't think, the, don't think the fans will be too interested in uh, the next World Cup if, if we're sort of 35 points down at half-time at Twickenham. Yeah, well, that, I mean, so, there, so the combination, um, do we look, up front first, before we even look at the three-quarter line and, and, and how they decide and how they're going to take on this in, incredible, not just fantastic running rugby from Ireland, but tough running rugby as well, isn't it, Nick? We, you know, you, you, you've got to look at their centres and, uh, and what they do uh, and how we have to use physicality there uh, as well as up front. Uh, they are, I mean, they, they, they are in the zone. Um, is the expression you use, you know, their, their focus, relaxation, they're, they're so comfortable with the timing of everything that goes on. Each player knows where they're going to be instinctively. And that's down, it's a lot down to their club system, you know, their school system throughout, you know, certainly in the Leinster province, um, up through the academy and the fact that, you know, most of the team are the Leinster players and they've been playing together for a very long time. So the combinations are there and the cohesion is there. Um, but the other guys from the other the other provinces fit in seamlessly, and you know Andy Farrell's got to be at the moment he's the number one coach in the world, the head coach in the world. I mean how he's, you know, you compare and contrast to France, who are suffering a bit of a hangover, and you can you're hearing things that there's a bit of infighting going on. There's a bit, of, you know, typically French sort of, uh, um, you know, they've gone off the rails a little bit or gone off tour, whereas Ireland had the same disappointing result at the World Cup and were expected to be sort of in a final. Um, and Andy Farrell's got them back on track pretty seamlessly and said, right, you know, the next challenge is, is to win a Grand Slam in 2023. And look, they're, they're a joy to watch. They're like the All Blacks teams, you know, of, of sort of, you know, many, many eras really in terms of, you know, that they are setting the standard. They are setting the bar in terms of skill, in terms of intelligent rugby. But I can tell you they're as physical as anyone else as well. It's not just the case of England turning up and being more physical than them, like people are saying. Ireland are a very, very physical side, if not one of the most. So who who are the players that, that sort of get the nod as far as you're concerned? I mean, you know, we're talking about the Vinopola, Saracens. Are we talking in 
uh, midfield of Tuilagi coming back in and, and, and doing a job as well? Or, or how, how do you both see this then? I'll come to you, George, first. I, I would actually quite like to see, uh, uh, if not the same, certainly a similar side to that was picked against Scotland. Okay. I think that first 10 minutes was uh, actually quite enjoyable from an England point of view. They looked to play, they looked, scored a very nice try, 10-0 up. Uh, didn't look too phased by the by the situation uh, away at Edinburgh against a good team. Uh, yeah, the wheels the wheels came off pretty badly after that. And, and as Nick says earlier, it was a pretty awful game for the for the next seventy minutes from England's point of view. But actually, I think that that's not a bad sign. Those, those little early green shoots of progress. Uh, I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I, I would certainly be very reticent bringing in some of those older players, particularly of any Runapol. I know what he does offer and, and all that, but yeah, he's not going to be there at the next World Cup. That's that's almost for sure. Uh, I think the back row actually looks quite well balanced. I quite like the balance of it. I quite like guys like Pearson on the on the sort of fringe. Maybe he he's he's due a bit of a a go in the first team. Um, so I mean, I think if you're going to start building something, it's probably already started. There's there's sort of you know, rumours circulating today about some discontent in the camp about how they're not really drilling much in the attack. That could go something towards explaining why they're, they're, they're looking like a sort of a under-15 B team uh, in attack, uh, trying to work on this defence, which is fine. But the thing is, if you start chopping and changing now just to win or try and win a one-off game against Ireland, then you're not, you're not looking at the bigger picture. And as I said before, I think I would hope that behind the scenes, Borthwick has said this to his bosses. Look, you know, it's going to be a bit of a rough road. We're going to be losing some games we're playing against two of the top four teams in the world in Ireland and, and France uh, we can't expect to win those games right now but you know judge me on the next World Cup and this is this is a stepping stone towards that so I, I, I wouldn't like to see massive wholesale changes I think mm. you know, Manu, Manu is Manu really the sort of weapon he used to be no he's not he's, he's getting older he's had injuries so is there any real benefit in persevering with him having said that I don't think Henry Slade has really played that well in the centre either so you could you can make an argument for sort, sort of some of those form changes but I wouldn't just make some mm. changes bring old guys in for the sake of it I don't think that, I don't think there's any any benefit in that you know I mean developing it Nick uh, with this now with the Six Nations obviously with Autumn Internationals and everything else that will be going on and and, and, and moving the squad or those that Borthwick wants in his squad over these next, well, the next couple of years, certainly before they then get to, to fine tuning. It's important to use the cycle in the right way, isn't it? It is, um, but we've, we've messed it up uh, quite a few times with England. <laughs> and, you know, on George's point, I wouldn't change too much, but I would change, uh, I would have George Martin in there in the second row or, or, or the back row. Um, for Ethan Roots uh, and either Chesham or George Martin plays at six because um, I think this guy he suddenly becomes the most important forward at Sneelight and he's only played about three games for England um, I would like to see Finn Smith starting at 10 I think you know he, he looks like he's a test match quality player at 10 and George Ford uh, for all the service he's given England you know for a 90 odd cap 10 he is not playing like a 90 odd cap 10 at the moment and I think um you know, don't waste any time in bringing Finn Smith in. And Marcus Smith, you know, there sounds that he might be back as well, so you could have him off the bench. Um, and that would generate, you know, that generates threats for, you know, excitement, but also form players um, yeah. to try, try and get this, you know, this stuttering attack going. Um, I'd also like to see, and I know people question his fitness and everything, but, you know, you look at Joe Marlowe, who's been absolutely extraordinary for England and is still, you know, our best scrummager. I'm not saying, you you know, that he doesn't play, but 
someone like Beno Urbano, who's, uh, you know, had a hell of a season at Bath, you know, bringing him into the mix. And these are all guys, Saggers, that, mm. you know, don't, you know, have single figure caps or are uncapped that we need to bring through for the next four and eight year cycle because we have messed it up too often. We have messed it up too often for short term gain. And I think if you compare to Warren Gatland, Warren Gatland's lost three games out of three. He's not under the same pressure as Borthwick. Now, you know, they're, they're as passionate about their rugby in Wales as they are in England, believe yeah. you me. And, but people can see there's a plan there. You know, he's he's got rid of the, you know, the old stages, the guys that have been brilliant servants for, you know, the past you know, 10 plus years. He's he's known that he's he's going to be suffering. He's brought in a load of youngsters. Look, some of them won't make it next year. Some of them will be around for another two, three World Cups. But he's earmarked and talent ID. These youngsters, he's given them raw experiences. It's going to be hurting at the moment because, you know, they're, they're not doing too well results-wise. But you can see there's little green shoots and baby steps to what they're trying to achieve there. Mm. And people are patient with him because they, they, they can see a long-term plan. And he might end up, you know, winning, you know, winning one game or none, he might get in the, end up getting a wooden spoon. But people can see what's going on there. With England at the moment, we're lacking that clarity um, and transparency of where we're actually going in this for certainly this four years. Yeah, look, you, Nick, you've made some really good points uh, there, and, and and George to sort of add to that as well. At international level, in quite a few sports, we we don't tend to get it right when to let go in perhaps a way. They do in the Southern Hemisphere. And we need to learn that a lot more now with these cycles and with the importance of World Cups. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's it's a difficult uh, balancing act, isn't it? And yeah, Nick says there, we haven't got it right since 2003. Right? You could argue in 2003, we probably held on to uh, five or six guys for another two years, which impeded the development. We then ended up going into the 2007 World Cup, very half-baked with... with with a sort of hodgepodge crew, uh, 2011, 2015, very similar. 2019 was probably the only time we really had some sort of stability and consistency in selection. Uh, and then after that, you know, losing that World Cup final there, we, we wasted the next uh, three and a half year, three year cycle. So, I mean, it is difficult. The South, Southern Hemisphere guys, particularly New Zealand, you see New Zealanders, um, unless you're a Richie McCaw or Dan Carter, you know, an all-time great, you get to about 30 years old and they're looking looking for you to move on. Yeah. And if you're not moving on, they're going to drop you and say, look, you know, thanks for your service. Um, yeah, there's very few, uh, very few All Blacks go on past sort of 30, 35. Um, for whatever reason, I think may, maybe, as I said, the Six Nations is that little bit more important than than the Tri-Nations or the, or the, the Rugby Championship, whatever they play in the Southern Hemisphere mm -hmm. any any given time maybe uh, in the back of our minds it's something that you know we need the old guys around we need the old guys around to teach the new guys well yeah that's true again to a degree but at some point you know particularly these days i think youngsters come out of academies that come out of school even and they're ready to play at quite a high level it's just about getting that experience and, and letting them go and learn i think we do we do treat them a little bit with kid gloves these days it's a bit like oh we don't want to ruin their confidence too early well yeah that's that's fine but if you don't test them early then you're, you waste a couple of years you find out three years later they're not up to it you could have found that out sort of three years ago if you see what i mean so it, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's a peculiarly actually english thing i think the as said as mm. nick said warren gatland's done a pretty good job moving some of the senior players on from there. I mean, that must have been quite hard, but they're, they're now in the, properly in a phase where they're looking like there are some developments for uh, the next few years. England need to get on that page uh, ASAP. Oh, look, I agree with that, Nick. I mean, the, the let let them go. I, I and mean, we, we see it in other international sides where we 
in cricket and certainly in football at the moment, you know, we we don't perhaps um, give them in, enough of a chance very early on. I I think as well the maturity of the those that in the modern era now want to play professional rugby. They are young. They thought about it. They're hardened. They know what they can do. They know where they can go. I do think that they need an opportunity, and I think that is the way forward. Um, not just in this Six Nations and Tri Nations and everything else to come, but in their development, so that in four years' time they're ready. Hundred percent. And there's there's a lot of benefits to uh, you know picking the youthful guys. They're, you know they they don't mind making mistakes. They're, no. they're not worried about the consequences. You know they're a little bit more daredevil. You know, they, they you know infuse a fresh energy. But the most important thing here, say, is they, you know, they, they've got to be good enough. And George yeah. says it. You know, these guys have got the mental skills now, and certainly physical, and these skills to be able to play at a high level at a much younger age. And you know, we've got some really, really as much as Premiership rugby might be struggling as sort of a whole in Europe and with the finances. In fact, the you know the academy systems are excellent mm. um, in, in most of the clubs there, and how they you know they, they bring through the youngsters, um, and. I suppose what it is, is it's the true skill of the top coaches in the world of sport that can identify when maybe, you know, a senior player's not quite hitting the standards that are required. And this guy, he's able to go there and beyond, but he might not hit it if I pick him for this game. It might be in five, ten years game uh, games time <clears throat> that this youngster, if you like, will be better than the guy I've got there already. Yeah. And that is a real skill. That yeah. not a lot of coaches and head coaches, managers, whatever it is in the world of sport have, because they just see the short term, and you can understand it because the pressure of expectation is so high, especially when you're coaching your country. But the ones with real skill and real talent will see someone that you know will supersede this guy in about you know three to ten games, and, and then what you've got then is a player who's who's far better, who's potentially going to be world class. You put about four or five of them in a rugby team and you become a real World Cup contender. Plenty more Saturday uh, Grand Prix this particular season, particularly in certain parts of the world where it works much better for them on a Saturday than a Sunday. Uh, It didn't work really for anybody uh, apart from Red Bull uh, in Bahrain yesterday. Uh, Tony Jardine, of course, is always commentating and uh, watching the event. Tony, it's good to have you for a new season. But I mean, there are so many points to talk about here, first of all. But uh, Verstappen and Perez, really, as as they went, nobody else really got a look in. No, uh, they didn't. I mean, all I could say, which I was, I was telling the um the, the other TV audiences in the Middle East and Africa over, over the weekend, is listen, mm. They're so much closer in qualifying. There are, you know, it's going to be the longest season ever. We've got 24 races. There's a long, long time to catch up. And and when you extrapolate it all, yes, of course, they're at the front and they've gone away again. But Ferrari have have clawed back about 50%. Mm. Mercedes made some terrible gaffes. I would would call it a gaff, actually. Their engines were overheating because they decided to, to close the cooling slots at the side. And they were kind of hampered from the start and they strangely had problems. But honestly, there, there was there was a lot to be uh, encouraged about um, over a long season. 
And if you look at the qualifying pace of the Ferraris, for example, it was really good. Mm -hmm. uh, it's only the fact that Leclerc had all these brake issues at the beginning. It's the brilliance of Newey. Again, we've talked about it. Adrian Newey, the, the designer at Red Bull. Um, Max Verstappen is very, very special indeed. But they can be caught. And, you know, the season goes through to December. Uh, I say that because if you, if you look last year at McLaren, they were nowhere until the British Grand Prix and they did all these updates on the car and suddenly they got a string of second places. Yeah. And suddenly Red Bull were looking over their shoulder at McLaren and going, where did they come from? So it can be done. Um, and, and I think, you know, it, it's encouraging all the work that's gone on over, over the winter uh, from from the challenges. Yeah, so, so let's look at one or two of the, the challenges, first of all, then in, in more detail, and Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes. He... He obviously spoke afterwards th thinking that they would be a lot closer than they actually were. I, I think because now you only have three days of testing before you literally go into the race itself. And they try to do, they try to simulate the longer race runs, but the conditions in the Sakia Desert, the wind comes out from all these different directions. They've got very sensitive aerodynamics. The temperature goes up and down like a yo-yo, which affects the cars as well. So one minute you think, oh, we're doing quite well. And the next minute you lose it. And next minute you can have a crosswind and you're doing 180 miles an hour. Suddenly you lose all your aerodynamics and the front of the car goes all over the place. That happened to quite a few people. It happened to Lando Norris and he got into a big slap over stick. In fact, we were all rubbing our hands together because Red Bull having a lot of problems getting their car set up because of the temperature issues and because it's a very difficult track. Mm. Next weekend, they're going to Saudi Arabia uh, to the Jeddah Cornisa, which is a street circuit, totally different. Yeah. Where, you know, the aerodynamics is not quite so important, where it's more about mechanical grip. And where people like Sergio Perez, he's a real street fighter, he's a street specialist. You know, he won that race last year. And he won two races at the beginning of the year last year. Went, oh, maybe maybe Perez is up for it. You know, maybe he can challenge his own teammate. Because that's the problem with Red Bull. You've got one guy, Verstappen. You haven't got another strong second driver who's challenging. When we had Rosberg uh, and Lewis Hamilton together um, in Mercedes, if you remember, they were always fighting. We had the inter-team battle. Or, or you could go, you could go Prost and Senna. You know, McLaren. Mm -hmm. Massive battles they had. I mean, you make such a good point there because I think he he doubled his winning uh, lead, didn't he, against his teammate Verstappen from eleven to twenty-two seconds. Yes, yes, yeah. And and then Red Bull themselves winning the constructors by over half as many points again from Mercedes. Yeah, almost unheard of. So just um, uh, talk us through then after this. I mean, you're, there, there will be some that will be saying, you know, is this just going to be another procession this season? I've, I've been you know, reading some of the headlines and other things. But as you said, you have to think slightly differently early on in particular here as, as they all begin to get into gear. Yeah. Just because look, Ferrari, Mercedes, McLaren have got a new wind tunnel that's come online. McLaren have taken Rob Marshall, who was the chief designer of Red Bull. There's been a lot of staff switches and there's a, there's a lot of promise there. And they will do a lot of simulator work, a lot of work back at the factory, and they will literally keep updating things. And, and the, other, the other thing is 
they can't do much about the power units, the engines, the turbochargers, because they're set. They, they, their specification is frozen now until the regulations change again in 2026. Mm. The man, of course, from when these regulations, you and I talked about it last year, 2022, mm. the regulations changed to these ground effect cars, effectively with these two big wind tunnels alongside the car, which sucks it down to the ground. What it means, it, it actually sends less dirty air out of the back, so it, it makes it easier for the cars to overtake. That's working really, really well. But the guy who designed wing cars back in the 80s before they were banned on Indianapolis cars was Adrian Newey, the Red Bull man. And that's why he got it right at the beginning. And the others are still playing catch-up. So they caught up and they got really close at the end of last season. Was he done? He, he took more risks. Instead of just doing an evolution of the car, he took more risks. Mm. And he's gone off <laughs> and done something else. And thought, ah, oh, that won't work. But it has. And so they've gone just a little bit further ahead again. Yeah. I, I, f fascinating for me with Lewis Hamilton as well this season, uh, where he is and uh, what he's doing in the Mercedes. But knowing already that next year he's, he's going to be in the Ferrari. How, how, how does that work as a driver? Look, I, I mean, honestly, it's like science knows it's his last year at, at Ferrari. But I think the mindset is one thing because Lewis tellingly said, you know what? He thought about it so well. And he said, look, I'm 39 now, but they expect me to win at Mercedes. Mm. They expect it. And they just go, well, it's 103 Grand Prix. It'll win more. That's all right. It's just a normal thing at Mercedes. But no, it's not happening. Mm. Two winless seasons. That's unheard of but for Lewis Hamilton. So he gets this opportunity, thinks about Ferrari. It doesn't matter at Ferrari. Anything he does at Ferrari will be an adventure. And he loves the challenge. So if he wins at Ferrari, he'll be a hero all over again. He's taken that into consideration. Mm -hmm. I think the money helps. It's twice as much. It's probably like 100 million a year, we're guesstimating. Yeah. But did you see the share price of Ferrari? On, on, that it went up once he signed Hamilton. My God, on the New York Stock Exchange, it was unbelievable. So, and the romance of him going to Ferrari. You look at English drivers or British drivers in the past, right the way through the 50s. You've got Peter Collins, Mike mm -hmm. Hawthorne, uh, even Brooks drove for them. John Surtees won the World Championship for them in 64. Nigel Mansell drove. The Italians loved Mansell. Ileone, they called him the lion. <laughs> Tell you what, they were at, they love Lewis Hamilton already. Sure. He will be an absolute god in Italy. And uh, you know what? Formula One driver doesn't want to have, wear the prancing uh, horse badge and, and get in that red car. It's a real romance. That's it for this episode of Back of the Stand. And thank you to all my guests, and most importantly to you hope we've given you something to speak about please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast so from me mark saggers we'll take that step up to the back of the stand next time goodbye hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 